Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I am doing good, but I am feeling the COVID blues today a little bit because obviously we are midway through our second lockdown and I feel like I just really very much so want to be in Christmas mode. I don't know if you feel the same way. I don't have a desire to be in Christmas mode, but I saw something and I thought of you. Someone was saying how they're playing their Christmas songs Mm. now. I thought of you because I'm like, that's what Phoebe's doing. I actually have been doing that for a while. (laughs) (laughs) I also do have some Christmas decorations up. I tried to get a Christmas tree this weekend. It wasn't to be. I don't know. I feel like if you were to look at me objectively right now, you'd be like, Oh, she is mentally barely holding on because there's a lot of Christmas tunes and festivity and things going on on the 16th of November. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you have the COVID blues, if you have the blues, like it's okay. Like don't make yourself feel like, oh, I can't be down. If you are down, like that's fine. Now, one thing I have been doing, I hope you'll be impressed because obviously, as we've discussed on the podcast, you have done several months on the trot now where you've run 100 kilometers. And so one thing that I've been doing to keep my COVID blues away is that I've been trying to do 20,000 steps a day. So walking around 10 miles and because I'm walking, I can do it every day because there's no impact on my joints or anything like that. And I'm actually enjoying it so much. So my husband and I go for a walk or two walks, dependent on where we're at every day. And it really, it sounds so obvious and it is so obvious, but getting out of the house really helps, guys. Oh, yeah. Getting out of the house is absolutely like such a necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think walking is all good. Like it's just about moving. Yeah, for sure. I really think being in nature is so powerful. So now I'm on my, I think I'm on month seven or something like that of like my 100K. Yeah, I think that sounds about right. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's it. And then I was talking to someone and they were a bit upset that the gym for closing. Mm-hmm. and they were like oh I'm really like the rowing machine is my favorite like I'm really upset that the gyms are closing and I was saying you know there's something so powerful about getting into nature like if you love rowing that much why don't you join a rowing club yeah. like why don't you just do that outside mm-hmm. and prior to this whole COVID-19 situation I never ran in the rain right. or even walked in the rain like I had no interest and so I've started running in the rain and like I really enjoy it Mm-hmm. so even yesterday I was on a like a long run and then like halfway it started raining and I was like this is a vibe like I got even more into it so I totally get what you're saying in terms of like just being outside going for a walk spending time with your partner in that way can definitely help relieve some of the the stress mm-hmm. and I think this is something I read years ago it was actually a parenting tip but it was essentially a thing saying if you're looking to have a serious conversation with your child do it in the car because it's a very neutral setting and like basically your child or your teenager isn't going to feel attacked by you bringing up whatever topic of conversation because you're going somewhere you know you're en route whatever and it's not the same thing because obviously my husband and I don't have a parent-child relationship but I have found just even over the past two weeks as we've been going out on these walks and just chatting like we get up we live quite close to Hampstead Heath so we get up in the morning he makes coffee I make a tea but we get up like early we leave the house by just after six um walk up to Hampstead Heath and walk around the Heath for ages like we'll see the sun come up all of that kind of stuff 
and just having much nicer conversations that aren't revolving around things like doing laundry or what are we going to have for dinner or I guess the minutiae of real life, which you cannot escape, but just that because we're all trapped inside, it's been a fairly relentless recycling of all of those conversations for quite some time. Yeah, I really think life admin is such a relationship vibe killer. Totally. And now that we're at home so much, there's just more life admin. And it's definitely like for me, that has been one of the draining things. of of working from home but it was interesting um, I don't know if you picked up in the press you know where they were talking about the working from home tax so Deutsche Bank was saying that people who are working from home should be taxed a working from home tax of five percent oh wow (laughs) and that should be redistributed to people that don't have the opportunity to work from home I hadn't heard that That's a tricky one, because when you say that it should be redistributed to people who don't have the option of working from home, I know you're talking about the frontline workers, essentially, that we always categorize as doctors and nurses, but Mm -hmm. are actually the people who get you your takeaway coffees or the people who make you your lunch or the people who work in supermarkets or your hairdressers or beauticians or whatever. So it's a difficult one then to say definitively, oh, no, they don't deserve that. However, I do think that sometimes in this country, in America, perhaps globally, we will tie ourselves up in knots to find some way that wealthy people just don't have to pay tax. There is a trend of the individual needs to fund the NHS. The individual needs to fund free school meal for vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. Like Juliet needs to be taxed 5% more so that Phoebe can have a living wage yeah this is wrong like the logic of it for me is absolutely wrong but you're obviously not on LinkedIn enough because LinkedIn was on fire about Mm. this yeah people were very very upset about this last week I mean justifiably because I think that what you have as well is a situation where I would have been a huge advocate for work from home because I do think that it lends itself to a better work-life balance a lot of the time. But now that I've done nothing but work from home for seven, eight months, whatever it is, I know that I could never do it full-time. And so what I hope that we move towards is a more kind of dignified split where people can go into the office because that collaboration I actually do think is important and is efficient but that people do have the option of saying a couple of days a week, I'm going to work from home. And it doesn't have to be regimented. Mm. Yeah, but I think that's what we're moving towards because there are lots of people who have always worked from home. Mm. Yeah, loads of roles who always work from home. We obviously met in an office. Yes. <laughs> so um, We're not those people. For me, the highlight of work was going in and hanging out with my colleagues and customers that's what I've always enjoyed the most so it'll be interesting how things evolve I don't think that five percent tax will get off the ground somebody must have leaked it to see what the sentiment would would be around it yeah that's probably true you know yeah and that sentiment was not it didn't work it was wholly negative but I did notice that last week I'm hesitant to condemn it outright because we've Obviously, I've said this before, but my husband is a hairdresser. Over COVID, he has received literally zero government support. And so I know that there are millions like him. Mm. And there's about three or four million across the entirety of the country who are in the same position. And so I do absolutely think that what we've really revealed over this 
a whole period of time is that we have very little respect for trades. We have very little respect for building, carpentry, all of that kind of stuff, who were expected to continue work as normal with very little protection and also weren't given any real furlough support if they were freelancers. We have no respect for that whole industry, full stop, any freelancing industry. But again, as you said, the individualistic aspect is Mm -hmm. just so absurd. Oh, yeah, absolutely absurd. And, you know, if we talk about, like, how do you support people, there are many different ways to support people. One of the ways is don't give large government contracts to your friends Mm. with no results, which is, you know, what the the government has been doing. Like the money is there, the resources are there, it's just mismanaged, Mm -hmm. right? So if we're in a situation where it's like, wow, this government's doing everything that they can, the resources are being spent appropriately. Yeah, I could have a conversation perhaps, but if we're in a situation where we've got the highest death toll in the UK, they're giving out contracts to their mates, we're still Mm -hmm. not tracking and tracing in a way that makes sense. I'm not giving you guys an extra penny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is so true. I just feel like it's all a bit of a shambles. And this is a segue, but I think it links back to essentially what you're saying, because nothing seems to stick to the Tory party when they pull these kind of stunts. Obviously, season four of The Crown came out last night. Oh, it came out yesterday. I didn't allow myself to watch it until yesterday evening. Did you watch all of it? No, I only watched the first two episodes. I'm really trying hard to ration it. (laughs) What about you? No, no, I didn't have the chance to start. I watched something else. I watched a crazy documentary on Netflix and basically swallowed it whole. I watched Trial 4 on Netflix, which is essentially the story of a black man called Sean Ellis. And he was arrested for a crime that he didn't commit. He was in jail for 22 years. Wow. Crazy. Really well, yeah, heavy. Very well done documentary, but very sad. So I didn't have time to watch The Crown. (laughs) I was going to say, well, this was definitely like, this is lighter watching. But Mm -hmm. what I said to my husband when we were on episode two, I was like, God, I really feel like I'm feeling a lot of sympathy for Thatcher here. And now I wasn't alive when Thatcher was in power. And obviously you hear a lot of people talk about how awful she was. And you like when she died, for any of our international listeners, When she died, the people of the UK got Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, back to the number one position on the charts. But I was like, oh, I'm feeling quite uh, sympathetic towards her. And my husband, who is from the north of England, which is obviously one of the locations that was decimated by Thatcher, was like, yeah, me too. (laughs) And I was like, oh, God, is this why the Tory party just benefit from such great PR that Boris will do some little fumbling, I don't know, public appearance and everyone will be like, oh, I don't mind that he didn't want to give kids free school meals. I don't mind that he gave all of those contracts to his mates. Like, I'd have to watch it. I can't comment because I would have to watch it. But there is definitely, I don't know what it is that the Tory party has, but there is something that really appeals to British people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it doesn't seem to matter. It's like a lot of the time you're voting against your own best self-interest, I think. I mean, obviously. No, but that's human beings in general. That is human beings in general. But what I think you have in such an interesting way in the UK, right? Say if you look at the US with someone like Trump, even if he didn't care about those kind of rust belt, the poorer white communities who voted for him, 
He pretended that he did. But in the UK, mm. the Tory government don't even pretend to care about you. Yeah. They are all Etonian. It's all old boys clubs. It's all, well, if you didn't want to be poor, then maybe you should have done something about it. And yet they still benefit. So I just think that there's something even more explicit about it in the UK that I find surprising. It's very explicit in the UK. Uh, the UK is, last I checked, the least socially mobile country out of all the OECD countries. Oh, really? I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. So this, this, there is literally zero social mobility in the UK. Um, but I think everybody wants to look down on somebody. Mm. There's a quote uh, from Margaret Thatcher. She said that anybody who's on a bus after the age of 26 is a loser. That's a paraphrase. <laughs> and so everyone wants to look down on someone. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that's really ingrained in human nature now. Yeah. And it's definitely a part of the British fabric. <laughs> that's the culture. And that's probably what appeals to people emotionally. Like everybody wants to look down on someone pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This is something that really appeals. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to look down on someone. That's the only thing that I can think of because obviously you're not a member of the aristocracy, right? So what is it about this that works for you? And that is actually so interesting because this morning I often feel like I say, and then my husband said, and I was telling my husband about this. Obviously I'm not talking to anybody else, guys. <laughs> I'm just at home. But when I was on my walk with my husband this morning, we were talking about it because we were talking about last night's episodes. And um, again, I'm just trying to understand a bit more. Now the backdrop of the first couple of episodes at least is also bringing in the IRA and the, the terrorist acts that took place there. But I said something about it does kind of seem that Thatcher, I don't want to be like her heart was in the right place because I'm sure that I would get rightly dragged for that. But that her aim was actually to look further than just reactionary activity. So when she was trying to do 4 billion worth of cuts, that it was actually to benefit the UK economy, but it kickstarted this whole sell everything off that essentially means that the UK has no industry now. And um, my husband was like, bootstrapping is the right word for it because up until that point, the Conservative Party leaned into its image of the old Etonians, the best schools, as you said, the kind of the upper echelons, the aristocracy. And she was the first quote unquote normal person that had made it certainly to the head of the party. She was the daughter of a shopkeeper, an alderman shopkeeper, you know, who just worked hard and got herself to Oxford. And so that then there came a degree of aspiration to the Conservative Party that it maybe hadn't oh. benefited from before. Anyway, listen, I don't want anyone listening to this to be like, um, hey, Phoebe, it's a TV show. No, but that's a big point in terms of like British culture, because before it was an exclusive club that you had to be born into, because who could afford to be a politician anyway? Like you'd have mm. to be independently wealthy to have been a politician. And then obviously you get someone like Thatcher who did work her way up and did pull herself up by the bootstraps. But statistically... Like, it doesn't matter, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a book I'm reading now, and it's called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And some of his earlier research basically centers on just, like, how human beings think. And basically, a lot of the time when we're making decisions, essentially, we ignore the data. And we focus on stereotypes, our own bias that we have in our mind, and emotion. 
And so you look at someone like Margaret Thatcher and yeah, I can see how a story like that pulls you in. But statistically, Mm. it's impossible. Yes. With the structure that we have, with the social structure and institutions that we have, like she is a one in a billion. So to make your decisions (laughs) based on something like that is just so illogical. But a lot of people do it. Totally. And I think also what's especially ironic about it is that she then dismantled a lot of the structures that enabled that to happen in the first place for her. So you had this absolute surging of the middle class, but she wouldn't have necessarily been thought of as middle class. So it's an interesting one. And I think one of the things that I like about The Crown is that often it sparks me to go and find out more about something. Mm. which I think all good media should, because all good media should acknowledge, listen, we're only going to be able to give you a snapshot, but hopefully you'll be interested to go and learn more about it. Yeah. And I don't know what a Thatcher's generation are called, but essentially it's so boomer to like have all the opportunity, have a free or heavily subsidized education and then say, nope, not for you. Yes. It's just classic. And I just, I don't really get that mindset because it's completely opposite to what I'm about, but People will take the opportunity and then they'll say, no, not you. In the immigrant context, people will be first generation in the country, you know, work really hard and then want to shut the door Mm -hmm. and not let anybody else in. And it's super strange. Yes. (laughs) And it's almost like that in the hope that you assimilate. Now, I think in the context of the boomer example or the, the Thatcherite boomer, for the people who actually did benefit from that, they're now in a position realistically where they are wealthy because they got to set themselves up so well at that age, you know, mm-hmm. where it was like they were in their whatever, 20s, 30s. So now their kids are in a more secure position by virtue of having secure parents. So they're like, listen, it's clearly fine. <laughs> If it was that hard for your generation, you millennials, then my kids wouldn't be able to be on the property ladder right now. And you think, oh, God. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I look forward to like watching The Crown and then I can share some of my thoughts next Mm -hmm. week, hopefully. But I do recommend this book, though, Thinking Fast and Slow, because it's basically just a lot of the time or before people would say that human beings were naturally logical. And essentially, we are not Mm -hmm. (laughs) like we are not logical we don't base our decision on the numbers <laughs> like mm-hmm. we literally are just out here like <laughs> that's all it's like human beings are just out here and I do think that that's so true as well because we talk about gut feeling all the time yeah, yeah. and I think it's why it's complete nonsense like I don't want to say nonsense but a lot of the time it is that you will be like, hey, Juliet, I've got this situation. Jules, what do you think? Um, and if you don't tell me what I want to hear, I'll be straight on to the next one. I'll be like, <laughs> hey, Charles, I've got this situation. I wonder if you can help me. Because what you're looking for is for someone to say, oh, listen, what you thought in the first place was correct. I'd just do that. Yeah, exactly. But we're always too in it to be able to get any perspective on it. Yeah, exactly. What's your perspective on Dominic Cummings being kicked out? Oh, yeah, because I'm definitely not too in it to have a good opinion on that. (laughs) Do you know what? I am delighted. However, big however, all of our liberal listeners are like record scratch. Mm -hmm. However, I'm disappointed if it is true that the reason he's gone 
is because of the nickname that he gave Carrie Simmons, Boris Johnson's fiance. If that is the reason, then that I find frustrating because it really goes to show that you can do whatever the F you want, but you can't slag off the prime minister's most recent fiance. Yeah, I don't believe that, though. I don't believe that that would be the reason why he'd have to go. He essentially got managed out, right? Just as a quick note for any of our international listeners, Carrie Simmons, Boris Johnson's fiancé, found out that Dominic Cummings and his loyalists throughout the Tory party were referring to Carrie Simmons behind her back as Princess Nut Nut, which is just like, that's even embarrassing to say out loud. It's just the stupidest nickname I've ever heard in my life. Like the idea that that is how these people think that you slag someone off is just so bizarre to me. But a lot of the publications were saying that Johnson found out that that is how his fiance was being spoken about. And it formed like the final straw. I don't know. Perhaps you're right. Maybe he was being managed out. It feels like August was a long time ago. And that's when he flouted all of the restriction, isolation, COVID-19 rules. So maybe it just took a while to manage him. Well, I think what really was the final straw was the US election and having Biden win that election. I mean, of course, you know, the US are hard negotiators, so it wasn't like the UK was going to get this great deal, Mm -hmm. this great trade agreement with the US anyway. But I think having Trump in office, he's such an unpredictable character that I think they were willing to bet on that relationship. But now that he's gone, I think it made the UK think twice. And what someone like Dominic Cummings is great at is that no compromise, no deal, no this, like he's very great at that. And I think that having Biden win, you know, I don't think that's a strategy that's gonna work. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, Boris getting on the phone with Marcus Rashford and saying, let's do something for the kids. Mm -hmm. I think that, especially because the Tory, they voted for it. So it's already gone through, but I think rolling that back I think is an example of them realising, do you know what, this is not going to work. And also Biden talking about Ireland. Mm-hmm. I think it's got the UK thinking we're going to have to change our approach a bit. And someone like Dominic Cummings, he's one, you know, would never allow that. Yes. And actually, do you know, it's really interesting that you do, you mention those components of Biden's, his MO, I suppose, because... Mm-hmm. We we touched last week, we were talking about it, we, obviously the election, and I mentioned about how he has a an understanding of the Good Friday Agreement. And um, Explain the Good Friday Agreement. So the Good Friday Agreement basically came into place to, to protect against sectarian violence between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And I think the thing is, it's very difficult to capture that in a, a short amount of words, because... Ireland as an island is such an anomaly and you can't think I would I well I would struggle to think I'd be interested to know if you can think of another country in the world that literally has just cut off the top third and the previous colonizers still own that part and there's no physical border but the bottom two thirds of the country are independent and categorize themselves as literally a completely different nationality a different currency, a different, do you know what I mean? It's literally a sovereign nation. 
And the thing is, it's also difficult to, I think, fully get into the intricacies of the sectarian violence that was spawned in a lot of the 20th century, I suppose, but let's say like 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And this is actually touched on, funnily enough, in this series of The Crown. I talked about the IRA, but Thatcher was one of the ones who drew the hardest line against the people who were, what's the word I'm looking for, when you do the, you do the hunger strike. So... I think it's like Leo Green, Bobby Sands. Bobby Sands is often thought of, you know, as one of the the big names because he died because they were looking for the English to to pull out of Ireland. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. It didn't happen. It's a somewhat fragile piece of legislation, I would say, as in it needs protecting. And as Biden's been having all of his calls from other heads of states congratulating him, obviously for the first time in four years, you've also got someone who knows the institution well enough to lean into the transparency that's supposed to go from that. So he released notes on each call that he had with Macron, Johnson, Martin in Ireland, all of the names, and basically said, this is what we spoke about, spoke about joining the Paris Climate Accord. But in his notes with Boris Johnson and Micheál Martin, he said, we spoke about the importance of the protection of the Good Friday Agreement, working on climate change. And with Ireland, he was saying, you know, from a personal and cultural and trade agreement perspective, you know, continuing to build those links. I don't know, I feel like I could talk about it forever and we'd never be any closer to getting any clarity on it. But there's a relationship there that is deeply complex. I was reading an article in The Spectator and it was basically about the US or Biden weaponizing Ireland. Interesting. Biden has got Irish heritage Mm -hmm. and so... They were trying to say in the article, they're basically saying you have to separate your pride in your Irish heritage from this political situation mm-hmm. that we've got going on over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you might like a pint of alcohol-free Guinness, <laughs> but you need to educate yourself on mm-hmm. what's going on over here. And I don't know the spectator's position on Brexit. Yeah, I mean, geez. And it's tough because also, you know, when we talk about good PR and we talk about the Tory party, mm-hmm. Ireland's got to have one of the best PR teams in the world. Like we mm-hmm. went from no blacks, no dogs, no Irish to literally being like, oh, biggest diaspora in the world. Yeah. Ooh, everyone's trying to, Barack Obama's got Irish heritage. Um, and when uh, he, don't think Barack no, Obama does. does. He absolutely oh, does, because after he won his first presidency, he came to Ireland, gave a big talk, and mm-hmm. his whole speech was like, it's on his mum's side, there's some Irish heritage there, talking yeah. about, like, he translated uh, Yes, We Can to Isfederlin, which is Yes, We Can in Irish. Like, the yeah. crowd were going wild. He was like, I've come back to get that missing apostrophe between the O and Bama that we lost some years ago, like... <laughs> There have been so many American presidents who discover, quote unquote, their Irish heritage. Clinton, Biden now, obviously, uh, Obama. I think it may have been maybe Reagan. Like, mm-hmm. easy PR points. Yeah, and then also Kamala Harris has Irish heritage. Oh, I didn't know that. And oh, you didn't know I, that? No, I didn't know that. Oh, oh the right? plantation that she's from on right. her Jamaican side, the plantation owner was an That's Irish right. man who basically owned one of the biggest plantations in Jamaica. Oh, my God. So Kamala Harris has Irish heritage. Great! Very traumatic <laughs> well, circumstances. 
very very awful circumstances yeah yeah so i mean the the irish diaspora stay like it's, it's crazy the irish diaspora out here mm. reading presidents and vice presidents <laughs> that's all i have to say <laughs> obviously you missed out the kennedys which are the most famous ones oh they're the most famous ones yes yeah, sorry i should have said kennedy <laughs> so, but it's very interesting because we've not had you know with with those other presidents like biden's been traveling to ireland for years mm. and he's been hosting his irish relatives in the us as well he's been coming he was hanging out with my cousin back in 2016 because when he was over in ireland he decided like to set up a meeting where he was meeting LGBT and domestic violence charities. And my cousin works for a charity like that. And um, she was hanging out with him and she put up a picture after he won the election. And she was like, so weird to think that all I was excited about was his previous proximity to Obama when I met him. And now I get to be like, oh, it's just me hanging out with. <laughs> it's really, really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. I would love to read a lot more about like the Irish diaspora specifically and how they've moved. And in the show I watched on the weekend, Trial 4 on Netflix, basically this all took place with this black man being in jail for 22 years. It took place in Boston. Oh, wow. And Boston is Irish. Boston's Irish. and The institutions are Irish owned. The law enforcement, the judges, it's very, very Irish. Mm -hmm. So you do get into some of the politics around that. Um, and you should watch it. I know I'll definitely check that out because I think what's interesting and I don't want to obviously just be my favorite my second job working as part of the Irish tourism board here but with a lot of the Irish diaspora in America a lot of them will be you know second maybe third generation Irish American who haven't necessarily visited Ireland ever but they have this idea of quote-unquote old country fixed in their head. And so when we spoke to Aaron Darcy a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the removal of the Eighth Amendment, so much lobbying was going on from right-wing, anti-choice lobbying bodies in the US because a lot of the Irish diaspora in the US have leaned heavily right and they've moved into also inherently racist institutions like policing and it's again when you it's funny how things all seem to link together because when you said at the start of the episode everyone wants someone to look down on a big part of how the Irish assimilated in the US and distanced themselves from the racism that they had or the xenophobia that they themselves had experienced was to make sure that they othered themselves or they othered black people heavily mm -hmm. you might think that we're drunks but at least we're not black yeah and this has been written about so much so if there's anyone who's listening and thinks well you know Irish people aren't racist I really encourage you to check it out because it makes a fascinating reading yeah and even when you watch this documentary you know they were talking to one of the the reverends in this community in Boston and he was saying how how come Boston hasn't elected a black mayor now with the shooting of this documentary Boston now has a black district attorney oh right who is half Irish half Caribbean female so really interesting. But at the time he was saying, how can we have an elected a black mayor? How come we don't really have any black people in prominent roles in the city? And he was saying how Irish came in, fought the Yankees, took over institutions in Boston. And the black community in Boston is essentially predominantly a black Caribbean community. So you've got Haitians, you've got people from Barbados, you've got people from different Caribbean islands. So it's very difficult for people from different countries to come together as a block 
Mm -hmm. and say these are what our interests are. It's a really interesting one. And obviously, I would say that one of the taglines of this podcast is scarcity mindset, because we do talk about it a lot. And people always want to discuss things in a vacuum as well. And people want to say, oh, like Irish people can't be racist because look, we had a colonized relationship with the UK. And look, the reason that we're all in the US anyway is because of the the Great Famine. And the thing is that that can be very true. And the Great Famine is objectively now, if you study it with an objective eye, you see that it was a genocide. That being said, the same part that you've said can also be true. We all fled to America for very unsavory reasons. And then when we got there, we tried to make sure that we didn't remain the downtrodden people. And so we affiliated ourselves as much as we possibly could with those institutions so that we could make sure that we at least weren't the bottom rung on the ladder. The church, the schools, the police. You know, when I was on the abortion rights committee simultaneously to that kind of campaign running there was a campaign to get Irish citizens abroad the right to vote because essentially with 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 any vote in Ireland but particularly the the referendum led ones you have to have been living in the country within two years and there was a real kind of divide about this do we want Irish citizens abroad to have the right to vote because you think about, okay, well, maybe it's young people who are leaving because of work and they're in London and they're in wherever and they're super liberal. So they're going to be hopefully voting to make Ireland a better place. But then you've also got the Irish diaspora who have a passport. And so by virtue could potentially have a right to vote. And guess what? They're not going to vote the way that you want Ireland or whatever country to be moving towards. So there's a, a complex relationship there as well. Yeah, it's super complex. And I talked to one of my mates about this a lot. She's Indian from India, like grew up in India and then moved to the UK for university and now lives here because of her work. And she always says to me that she's so shocked at how conservative British Indians are. And she's like, Jules, they are literally like, their mindset is what India was like in the 50s and 60s. Wow. And a lot of that is what they've inherited from their parents in terms mm-hmm. of, this is what Indian values are, but Indian values have evolved. Yeah. And she always tells me that her and her mates who grew up in India are just way more liberal than some of the British Indians that she's met. How interesting is that? I guess as well, though, that really touches heavily on what you said last week about treating cultures as a monolith. One thing we did want to chat about before we wrap up was the vaccine. Yes. Okay, here's my question to you. Would you take a vaccine? Uh, Yeah, but not the first round. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. So you wouldn't take the first round. I think it depends. I don't know. I'm just thinking about it out loud. (laughs) I really want to go home for Christmas. (laughs) But do you need to take a vaccine for you to go home? At this point, you do not, obviously, because there are no vaccines available. But if it's one of those things, so what... What they're saying at the moment is that, you know, rapid testing may take place at airports and that will really dictate, you know, what the story is, um, so on and so forth. But I don't need one. And I know that there are people, there are, you know, sick and elderly people who, who need one before me. However, I would certainly take one. As you said, I just probably might not take the first one. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting. People have got really crazy views about the vaccine. For me, when I heard this story, and I heard that it was two Turkish immigrants, a couple, 
that have created the first vaccine for COVID-19. I was super excited about that, especially if you look at the context of Germany and how Turkish immigrants are treated in Germany. I don't know if you know much about that, but they're not treated well. I don't know too much about it. I know that there's a huge Turkish culture in Germany or a huge diaspora, but I don't know much yeah. more than that. Oh, yeah. So one of my colleagues, he wrote a post about it and he was like, this is such a big moment for like the Turkish community in Germany. And a couple of years ago now, there was a backlash against this Turkish-German footballer, Ozil. Oh, okay. Anyway, big, 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 big footballer. And <laughs> he was basically saying... When I when I win, I'm German. When I don't win, I'm Turkish. And he was going to Turkey and he was doing his thing. And German people were like very pissed off. Mm -hmm. So this is such a big thing for the Turkish community living in Germany. And I find it even more interesting in this context of like people wanting immigrants to leave, people wanting them to get out, close their borders, etc. And I'm like, oh, but you're going to take our vaccine. <laughs> That's my vaccine. Are you going to take uh, my vaccine? Are you sure you want to run the risk of taking that immigrant vaccine? Yeah, because if you didn't want me before, you can't have me now, <laughs> right? Just because there is a backlash mm -hmm. against immigrants across Europe. Yes. The fact that it's a Turkish-German couple, clearly brilliant, like brilliant mm -hmm. couple. Like this couple is, I don't know if you've read about them, but insanely. Oh, yeah, you have to read about them. I know. I feel like I've been living under a rock. Yeah, I think so. But it's really just such an amazing example of the contributions that immigrants do make. And it's funny because you say about, you know, people wanting to claim the good parts and then say, oh, you know, if it's the quote unquote bad immigrant, it's like, oh, they're not from here. Listen, don't let that stop you. Trump mm. claimed that it was American scientists who had done it. He announced we've we've created a vaccine. It's like not only are they not American, they're not even a little bit American. They're Turkish-German. Yeah. So. yeah, exactly. So Trump was saying that there was some American program that they were a part of, and they were like, no, we're not part of that program. We don't want the vaccine to be politicised in any way. Oh, my God, um, so funny. Yeah, so they d did not want to be associated with Trump at all. But, yeah, but that put a smile on my face. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's funny because, you know, when you say, would you take it, or when I said to you, would you take it, like I said, my, my main reason for not taking the first one is that I know that there are a far greater amount of immunocompromised or old people who actually need it in a much more real way to get back to normal life that I have gotten to live. Even if I've been at home, I can go to the shops, whatever. But people love to be a little bit conspiracy theorist about it and say, oh, how have they gotten to a vaccine so quickly? Vaccines take years. And it's like, we literally have never, ever, ever had anything like this societally like the world has ground to a halt and if you don't think that everyone has shifted their focus to pull together a vaccine for this so that people can even go back to the office people can go back to prep then you are naive because I think that that is the reason that we have a vaccine because we have been indiscriminately impacted by COVID but also it's early days right so this is a breakthrough but it's mm -hmm absolutely early days and this vaccine it requires two doses mm -hmm. and it has to be stored at a really really low temperature so it's not like the easiest vaccine to distribute right and then also in terms of when something requires like two doses there's a lot of drop-off at the second 
dose. Yes. People yeah. don't go. People don't want to get a vaccine. And then those that do go, there's a high drop off rate. So super early days, guys. I don't think things will be back to normal in the springtime. But I think it's great that we do have this breakthrough. And like you said, everything is being invested mm-hmm. in finding a vaccine and getting the economy and everything back to normal. Yeah, and that's not me saying that obviously the economy is the biggest priority. We've got the biggest death rate in Europe. But I do think that people are focusing on that because longer term, that's the thing that they can try and control. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that, that is why we are where we are. Yeah, and I think, you know, yeah, we've been stuck at home. But like you said, there are people who can't even go into a shop Mm-hmm. them you know compromised so I'm looking forward to like more breakthroughs around that apparently AstraZeneca you know they're on the verge of having a breakthrough with their vaccine I am not an investment advisor but that could be a good stock <laughs> to look at uh, I'm all about financial independence <laughs> that's it so that could be a good COVID play for you guys but yeah thanks so much for listening thank you for listening guys and share the podcast with a friend let us know your thoughts. Bye. Bye.